Hi, everyone. I'm Andrew. And I'm Michael. And this is the Endurance Innovation Podcast. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Endurance Innovation. Um, I'm flying solo today because of... uh, a mixture of technical difficulties with our recording software, as well as some uh, scheduling interference. And so uh, instead of the regularly scheduled programming, uh, which would have been an expert interview to support some of the, the claims that Andrew and I made in our Go Faster segment of last week, um, I'm going to do a Q&A episode based on three questions that I've received from both listeners and athletes who I coach. But I think they're they're interesting enough and varied enough and um, somewhat in the spirit of what we've been talking about recently that they uh, make really good uh, points of conversation for this podcast. The first question comes from local pro and listener Frank Serbara, who is planning on changing his bike setup from a two-by to a one-by. And uh, for those of you not familiar with this lingo, basically it means he's going to get rid of his front derailleur and front shifter and second chain ring in the front and uh, use only a single chain ring um, in the front. So there's no shifting in the front, only shifting in the back. The pros of, of going this way are... You know, simplified shifting uh, if this is an issue for you, but primarily in triathlon, it is thought to be advantageous because of aerodynamics, because there's less stuff on your frame and and fewer chain rings, so there might be an aerodynamic gain from it. And we touched upon this a little bit, Andrew and I did, uh, in our arrow breakdown episode uh, that was two or three weeks back now. So Frank asks kind of a, a pretty nerdy but really smart question. Uh, to see what is the optimal chain ring in his front. Since he only has one, he's got to get it right since he doesn't have the second one to fall back on. So uh, here's the information that he gives me. Um, This is for Texas 70.3 that he's going to be racing soon, and his choice of Uh, choice of rings are 54 or 58. That's what he's considering. For some reason, the ring that he wants to go with doesn't offer a 56. So at that cadence of 75 to 80, he uh, wants to know what his optimal choice of front ring is going to be. So if it's going to be the 54 or the 58. So uh, one thing to know about Frank is that he and I recently did um, one of the virtual wind tunnel analyses. So we have a very good idea of his aerodynamics. I also asked him about his uh, race power, and he estimates that to be around 250 watts for this for this effort. So uh, we did a little bit of calculation using that um, that. Uh, the power and his aerodynamic data to come up with the average speed that he's going to be holding, which is going to be roughly around 41 kilometers per hour, which is, you know, a good steady clip. Uh, That's why, you know, Frank's a pro. (laughs) So based on that, we can kind of uh, get a sense of what sort of gear ratios would be ideal for Frank to work with. There's actually a really handy tool, which I'll link to in my show notes that allows you to calculate either speed based on gear ratios or gear ratios based on speed, depending which way you want to do the math. So based on uh, using his projected average speed, and Texas is quite flat, so it's not going to change very much. Um, And knowing that we want to be kind of not all the way in the smallest cog of the rear, but but somewhere close to the to that smaller end, the faster end, the harder end, and the and the cassette, 
um, and noting that he has a somewhat low, but not certainly a typical cadence of 75 to 80 RPM. We plug all of that into that calculator and uh, we arrive at an answer that 58 is actually much, much better than 54. In fact, if he went with 54, a 54 tooth front ring, he would be running out of his cassette at the back. So he would be at the, um, at the, at the very extreme end of his uh, of his cassette in the eleven tooth cog, which uh, we don't want to be right at the edge because then you've got a nowhere to go if you need to you know pass somebody or go a little bit harder, um, or if you're going on a downhill, let's say, and your your speed actually exceeds you know forty one forty two kilometers by any significant margin. So using this little bit of analysis, knowing uh, Frank's aerodynamics from the VWT, uh, knowing his power projected power for the race, knowing his setup and cadence. We were able to give him an answer of 58 teeth. So kind of a, a, you know, maybe a little bit of an esoteric analysis here and not applicable to most. But anyone thinking about going to one buy, which is becoming kind of a, a popular thing to do in, in some triathlon circles, or at least a popular thing to do for certain races, certain flatter races. Um, this is an interesting analysis for, for people to engage in if that's the way they, uh, they want to go. The second question comes from an athlete who I work with um, named Eva, and she asks about uh, why is it that her energy levels in the evening when she does an evening workout are lower than uh, her energy levels in the in her morning workouts? Now, this question doesn't have an easy answer, so I'm just going to talk about some of the, the things that I have heard and read um, that could be the possible the possible explanation for this, but uh, noting that everyone is going to be different, this is more of just a, a thought exercise rather than a, a specific prescription. So um, we all have natural uh, or natural circadian rhythm, which is the rhythm that controls our sleep-wake functions. And there is quite a bit of difference between individuals in this rhythm. So um, you may have heard the term uh, chronotypes. And this just talks about whether whether people perform better in the mornings. So these are people who naturally wake up, you know, at the crack of dawn without an alarm clock, don't really have trouble getting up and going in the morning and, and being productive pretty much straight out of bed. Um, versus the people who are termed night owls who who do their best work in the evening and maybe struggle with uh, with getting out of bed. And then uh, there's a whole range of people that are that are somewhere in the middle. So that is one possibility that Eva just is a, is a natural uh, early bird, early riser, and uh, she does better in the mornings. Um, it is also possible that she's just trained herself to be that because typically that's when she does her workouts. And so it's possible that, you know, the, the later evening workout was just something that, that her body wasn't accustomed to. And over time, if she had practiced it, um, she may feel better with with evening workouts. Um, the inverse is also true. So for instance, for people who find morning workouts quite difficult, that isn't to say that they could never do morning workouts. It just means that they might have to uh, do a little bit of practice. So you get in, get in a few of those morning workouts before they start to feel natural. Because as much as we have, you know, genetic predispositions, um, a lot of, of what feels normal can be learned and can be trained. And so there is a, there is a possibility of, of switching some of these things up. Um, the other factor, of course, is nutrition. So depending on 
what your um, what your diet looks like throughout the day, you may feel more or less energized for a workout um, at various points in the day. Typically, if we do a workout first thing in the morning, um, we aren't eating while we're sleeping. So we come in with a little bit of a fasted state, depending on what dinner was like the night before. So if it's a really high intensity workout first thing in the morning, that's tough. Um, unless you have some time to eat something beforehand. Similarly, if you're in kind of a busy, busy work day or life day and don't have good opportunity for sound nutrition throughout the day, an evening workout may be quite difficult because you, you just are depleted. So those are kind of the two primary reasons that I would think this would be the case for, for Eva and for anyone else listening. The chronotype where your body naturally wants to perform as well as your nutritional state. Question number three comes from Mickey, who I work with and who is based in Dubai. And uh, Mickey recently raced the 70.3 Dubai event um, that was, uh, well, on this day of last week. And uh, he did very well. You know, had a, a solid PB and uh, I believe PB'd every single discipline. So congrats to him for that. During our post-race debrief, uh, Mickey posted a question about his race day nutrition. He did really well on the bike and stuck to the plan and was able to uh, take in about 160 grams total of carbohydrate, that is, in a two and a half hour effort. And based on analysis uh, using the inside software that we did a couple of months back, uh, we knew that at the, the power that he was putting out on race day, he was burning roughly 90 grams per hour. So uh, doing that math, you know, 90 grams times two and a half hours, he would have been at around 225 grams consumed. He replaced 160 grams plus or minus, leaving us with a bit of a shortfall of around 65 grams. Then he ran an excellent uh, run off the bike, uh, going just under 100 minutes, so an hour 39, which for him was a really big PB in the 70.3 distance. But he was only able to take on a further 25 grams. So the question was, how is it that he could run so well, and it really was a good run for him, on a mere 25 grams intake, given that he was already in a little bit of a deficit coming off the bike? And the answer, of course, is glycogen. Now, um, muscle glycogen is the preferred fuel for endurance activities, especially higher-end stuff. Uh, in fact, it is preferred by the working muscles over glucose that you take in. So, you know, that sport drink you drink or that gel you take, uh, muscle glycogen will still be used, it's still preferentially used above that fuel. So it's that fuel supplements glycogen, but especially during really hard efforts, muscle glycogen is the first to burn. Um, now, most people will have around 400 or so grams of uh, muscle glycogen stored. It depends on uh, muscle mass. So those of us who are bigger and have more muscle will have more glycogen storage. And those of us who are a little bit smaller will have less of it. So Mickey's on the smaller side, um, but 400 grams of carbohydrate is a reasonable place to start with uh, his muscle glycogen stores. So if we do a little bit of analysis, um, let's say... Uh, out of the swim, he would have, you know, the swim, he may have burned around uh, 50 grams or so. So he's left around 350 grams. This is a little bit of a guess. On the bike, we just, we had a fairly accurate delta of, uh, of carbohydrate, which I mentioned to be 65 grams. So now he's down to around 300, maybe just a little bit under 300 grams. He was able to um, take in 25. So he's right around that 300, 320 mark. 
in terms of uh, glycogen storage, let's say, after the bike and considering what he took on the run. And the run, we don't have accurate data for because we haven't we didn't do the inside run test uh, on him. But even at uh, kind of a, a high estimate, a very high estimate of 120 grams to 150 grams per hour uh, on that run, he still would have been able to do that hour 0.66, you know, 100 minute uh, effort at that high level without depleting his glycogen store. So if we're assuming that he had roughly 300 grams left over off the bike because he did such a good job of fueling on the bike, he still would have had enough glycogen stores to finish that run. So the kind of the bottom line is that even though he took very little exogenous carbohydrate, meaning he ate very little carbohydrate on the run itself, he had enough stored muscle glycogen to perform at a a high level on that run course. So why is this important? For a couple of reasons. One, it's uh, it's very important to come into these long course races with topped up glycogen stores, um, which is uh, a topic we'll cover in a future episode, but uh, carb loading is a valid approach to to doing just that. Um, So that's takeaway number one. Uh, Takeaway number two is Mickey did a great job of feeling on the bike. Now, if he wasn't able to taken 160 grams but let's say he only did the same kind of rate as he did on the run of you know 25 grams in just over an hour and a half on the bike that would have maybe scaled to 50 grams to be generous and if he only had 50 grams instead of 160 grams then chances are he would have bonked that run so he wouldn't have been able to keep up at least at least he wouldn't have been able to keep up the intensity that he was able to exhibit on uh, on the day so make sure that you're coming into your races well carved up um, and make sure you take advantage of the bike uh, as a, uh, a fueling opportunity. And this is, of course, for a 70.3 race. For a full iron distance race, chances are he wouldn't have been able to get away with uh, a paltry, you know, 15 grams an hour or so um, on the run. He would have had to have eaten more. But then again, his intensity would have been much lower on both the bike and the run, giving him an improved opportunity to not only take in, but also absorb carbohydrate. So there you have it. Congrats again, Mickey, and thanks for the great question. That'll wrap it up for us. Today was a, a real short one just because of the the scheduling conflicts and technical difficulties I mentioned earlier. I uh, hope you enjoyed it. If you do have your own questions, whether it be on the gear side of things that we covered in question one or, you know, nutrition or performance, do send them to us. We'd love to hear from you and we'll be happy to uh, put your questions up on the show. Okay, that's it for me. Um, if you like the show, please do tell your friends. That's how we grow. Help us spread the word. And uh, give us a rating and a review on iTunes or wherever you listen. Thanks, everyone.